The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Cover story. Cover a story or attain that coveted story. Get it? That is exactly what you want. Quoted as the expert. The story. Headline. The spin. Every week, join us to talk about all things important to relating to the public. Your public. Craft your image. Promote your products. Create expert status. Become the buzz. Join us with the pros. PR 101. Crisis management. Media blitzing. It's all here on Cover Story. We're reserving a headline for you. Now, Cover Story presents exclusive coverage of the 2009 PRSA Silver Anvil Awards. Please welcome your host, Brandy Shapiro Babin. Our featured guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes, who's Director of Public Affairs for the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force at Camp Pendleton. Welcome, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes. Thanks, Brandy. Thanks for having us on board. Yeah, this is so exciting. We, you know, good, good works, good works. So if you would, give us some background information on this campaign. Well, Anbar province, where the Marines have operated for, for more than five years, um, you know, is a, a name. Uh, there are cities there, Fallujah, Ramadi, that will always have a place in, in, our, in our history uh, for battles that were fought there. We've, we've lost uh, more than 1,000 Marines in combat in Anbar. And when our group went in, our, our first Marine Expeditionary Force, went to Iraq in 2008, the, uh, the tide had turned and <clears throat> the kinetic operations had, had declined. And, and what we found, what our commanding general found, was uh, people weren't communicating. People weren't getting the word. The average Iraqi on the street really didn't know what was going on, what, what we were doing, what our policies were. And, and he was determined to change this, and, and, and we took this mission right on board and, and right from the start stepped out strongly to, to, to communicate with the local citizenry right there in Anbar province. Which is so important. And, I mean, let's talk about it, like discommunication and communication. You know, there's different cultures. There's different, I mean, you know, the, the language barrier, the cultural barrier. So, and, and to come in in such, you know, str- such strong numbers, how did you sort of assemble sort of a cohesive plan so that you could communicate with these people on a level that would, you know, enroll, encourage, put them at ease? You know, I, I must have read everything T.E. Lawrence wrote uh, three or four times over. Uh, I've studied the maps, I've studied the religion, but I, I quickly learned that I would never get there, that there are just some cultural divides that, you know, a Marine after a couple of tours in an area may not, you know, may not, you know, fully assimilate, you know, subtle nuances and, and things that, that limit our ability to communicate. So we we actively saw it and and brought on board to our team, an Iraqi national, to, to bridge these gaps and to guide us 
and he was uh, instrumental in all the success we had. And now, how did you go about enrolling him? I mean, did he feel? I mean, what was what was the upside for him to to come in and sort of be your spokesperson or the spokesperson for both sides? The uh, the gentleman um, is truly unique. He had fled Iraq, a native uh, native uh, Baghdad kid, uh, fled Iraq in the mid nineties when when he was advised he was on the hit list. Uh, tremendous story of how he his exodus of the country and how he ultimately became a Canadian citizen. You know, like <laughs> many Iraqis, uh, he returned to Iraq after. Um, after the fall of Saddam and, and sought to help out. This, this kid was an interpreter, advisor to uh, you know, combat units during Fallujah 1 and 2, but as, as the situation evolved uh, and, as, and as his skill sets became known, uh, you know, the military commanders realized he was really creative uh, and, and naturally inclined with publishing uh, you know, uh, newspapers and magazines and things like that. And although he wasn't formally trained in working with the media, um, over time he he developed relationships and skills that uh, made him invaluable working with native Iraqi media in Anbar province. Which is exciting. And you guys found, like, what was the... Um, you guys found that satellite TV... Was the second leading source of information in, in this in this area? Well, you know, it, it's always key to find out how how are people getting information. You know, whether you're you know selling selling a product or uh, you know trying to communicate your organization's policies. How how is your audience receiving? And we had a mm-hmm. lot of people you know really help us in in breaking the code on that. And, and also, you could just ride around and see a dish on just about every, every house or uh, facility there in Iraq. They like their satellite TV. They like, uh, you know, receiving it from a number of news sources uh, throughout the region. Um, but, but that was a primary means for them to, uh, to get information. It's not interesting. I mean, I, that's just that's so interesting that they would prefer satellite over something else. Is there? I mean, this is like a silly aside, but is there a reason why they would have adopted satellite over something else? You know, um, I I was uh, in Iraq in two thousand and three, right after the fall, and and I I noticed amongst the things people were purchasing on top of every vehicle was a a satellite dish. Um, you know. Throughout the region, I believe uh, people people enjoy the satellite TV. Uh, obviously, just like us, it's for sports. You know, try and move around when the Iraqis are watching a soccer tournament, and, and you realize, you know, how how much they enjoy uh, being able to uh, to to watch their sports. I, I think there's a regionalism there that um, they, they like to watch the Al Jazeera. The Al Arabiya. It's uh, just a, a broad variety of different opinions, and uh, that, that that they can get from the satellite TV, just just like us. Yeah, no, no, that's terrific. So now that you've helped, you know, you, you've helped cultivate this man, and you know, you you've helped him with media training, and you know, he's now working, you know, with 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 Western media outlets. He's working with. Um, you know the, the the different outlets um over in Iraq et cetera. what what are the main 
message points that you are wanting him to um, to relay to people? Well, it was um, it was an interesting process. What what we found early on, and, and you could watch the the news products that were generated. Um, and and one thing to note very early on is, you know, the the guy working for the local outlet in Anbar was also stringing for the Washington Post or the New York Times. I mean, it it all collided. So there wasn't a separate you know message or separate policy to to tell. To the Iraqis, it, it would all collide and come back around. And what we saw was historically um, something gets reported and it's incorrect, uh, and there was no way to fix that. So, so the local guy in Anbar got bad gouge. He uh, was ill-informed on a U.S. policy or a position or an incident. And, and then you would see that trickle back into the Western media as well. It was excitable. The reporting was excitable, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, ridiculous. And you would look at something and go, what? They said, what? And, you know, but, but it also, you know, there, there's strategic implications there. If, if the populace believes some... some uh, Sensationalized you know, piece of information. Maybe it's mm-hmm. enemy propaganda, but... You know uh, that could that could cause a riot. That could cause an attack, and it's yes. just um, it, strategic implications to misinformation. So w- we had to break that that long-standing problem, and and bringing uh, bringing our Iraqi expert on board was was critical for us. You know what what we quickly found was you know the Iraqi media they were eager to have a point of contact. Hey, we're hearing this, this, and this. And then to have someone pick up a phone in their language with their cultural background and understanding and just to address the issue was was simply invaluable. Wait, because then they had the ability, there was a trust factor, I would assume, on both sides. So we, they we could worked, feel confident. We worked hard on the trust. And, you know, part of that is to being as straightforward and blunt and honest when it's good news as when it's bad. And there were several times where, okay, holy cow, something bad happened, but let's address it. Let's let's provide them with the up-to-date, correct, accurate information for them to report. And, and to just accurately report it, uh, I think, enhanced everyone's credibility, you know, theirs as a news media representative and, and ours. Absolutely. I mean, because we all watch and we all see these crazy stories that are so scary coming coming out of Iraq. Sure. And then, you know, of course, you you know, you can look over at the BBC or, or, or different media outlets that are not a medium um out you know, American media outlets. And everybody has a different slant on the story. Do you feel that by employing him and sort of allowing him to sort of spearhead this, that you had a unified approach that through, you know, whether it be through the Iraqis or media outlets you know, on the Western side of the world um, or a global perspective, that this helps solidify the story? Did you find that people were all carrying the story in a more cohesive, consistent manner? Or, I mean, are there still a lot of people that are taking information out of context and blending it the way they want? The best quote I ever heard about reporting on, on Iraq is, it's very difficult to get to the truth in Iraq. And, um, and, and, and that's, you know, true 
then. It's still true today, but we made it better. And, um, and just, you know, breaking down the barriers. Uh, you know, we were very proud of the media training that we provided to the governor of Anbar, to the, the, the police chief of, uh, of Anbar, to, uh, to, to, to teach them to, to engage the media and to, to explain and show to them the importance of communicating with your citizenry and, and to do it professionally. You know, there's a, a tendency to bring your wasta to the interview. And, and to want to pound your fist on the table and, and tell stories of, of uh, you know, all the great feats you've done in the past um, in the interview. And, and basically, we said, check your WASTA at the door. You know, you were, okay. you were, you, you were communicating to your, your, your families, to your friends. You're coming into people's homes. You know, be respectful, be polite, be responsible in, in the interview. And, and we really saw a change. For those of you that don't, that people that don't understand, can you explain what a WASTA is? You know, you know, WASTA is just that that notion of of manhood, of, of bravado, uh, bravado. That that uh, you know. So unfortunately, people, you know, even even Westerners, even us, will will bring to an interview sometimes, and it it detracts from getting at the story to to accurately tell, you know, state your position. Leave the WASTA at the door. Leave the why. You know, I think I'm going to start using that in, in my own personal conversation. <laughs> Leave your watch at the door. That's terrific. I think I actually had, my goodness, if not the last and one of the last interviews with Karen Hughes prior to her departure from the White House. And, you know, one of her um, biggest charters was to create, you know, obviously a positive outlook of the United States and trying to engage, you know, countries across the board that America is a very safe place to do business with, that we, you know, we, we encourage commerce, we encourage, um, you know, global unity. I think that that's, you know, you guys have done a great job at establishing in, in your sector of the world strength in, in solidifying some really important information so that people are, re- are, at the end of the day, information is power. It is, and, you know, we recognized it was a, a very small tactical, you know, the, the western part of Iraq, a, a place that many had written off and, and assumed would be an al-Qaeda safe haven forever, and, and it, it changed, and, and they changed it, you know, they made that decision. But a, 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 a critical gap in how they were doing business was telling people about it, to, to tell your citizenry, to, uh, you know, to, to communicate with the voters, to, uh, to, with the farmer on, on what you're doing as a government, um, you know, what, what the plan is, how they can help. And uh, it, it builds expectations where, you know, that the next governor is going to be expected to, to speak to the citizenry, the next police chief is going to, uh, the expectation is there of, of come and tell us what you're doing. And, and we're very proud of that. Good for you. So how would you, from, a, from a, a results standpoint, you know, going back to when you um, submitted for your nomination for the Silver Anvils to today, how would you um, sort of nutshell the results for us? Brandy, a mentor once uh, told me that the Marine Corps only does two things. We, uh, we fight our country's battles, and we tell people about it. I, I think that's a very good uh, synopsis of our organization. 
uh, you know, we're, we're humbled and honored to, to be competing with you know, some of the largest organizations in the U.S. and some, some top-tier PR programs, but we're pretty good at this stuff, too. I think there's a reason why, when you see the President of the United States holding the door for him, standing by the helicopter, is always going to be a U.S. Marine. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful tribute. Um, you know, as you said, it shows the glory, and it also shows that, you know, there are many facets to the armed services that are out there protecting us. And I think, unfortunately, we take that for granted at times. I think it's very important. I think it's important for the American people to remember that there are a lot of American citizens that devote their entire lives to the protection of the United States, to the contribution that we make to other countries to help create, you know, a safe world. And, you know, I mean, what you're doing there, I think, is very important, telling the story, engaging people, and especially understanding, you know, because it is difficult. You're going into different countries with different cultures, and what we may deem to be right for a country may not be completely right for them because of their culture, you know, because of our cultural disconnects with them. What was something, what were some of, like, the top three things that you your perceptions going in versus once you started making these connections that completely changed and had you reorient your thinking and your position? I think, I think there was a perception that um, a lot of the local media were, you know, somehow aligned with uh, Al-Qaeda or somehow supporting, uh, you know, the other team. You know, Frequently, you'd see uh, video footage of an attack against an American or, or you know, the reporter that just happened to be at, at that spot when some atrocity took place. You know, we, we found working with these, uh, these uh, media representatives in Anbar that they were extremely professional, extremely, you know, committed to responsibly covering stories and events, maybe even more so than some of our Western media. They, they wanted to get it right, and they were willing to, you know, put, put their lives at risk on a daily basis sometimes to, to accurately tell the story. Interesting. So they're happy we're there. I really, I really believe so. We, we, worked, uh, we worked a lot with them on different levels. We frequently would have them on board our facilities. And I'll, I'll never forget, the first time we had them to Camp Fallujah, you know, they had to go through a security screening and things like that. And, and they, didn't, they didn't know our Iraqi uh, representative yet and didn't know his language capabilities. And they're talking amongst themselves. And they are surmising that they're going to be arrested they're they're coming to our uh-huh. facility and and talking amongst themselves and and you know are you going to do it I don't know and and throughout this whole process they think they're going to be you know de- detained or something of that nature and and finally we let them in on uh, we let them in on you know on on the skill set we now had incumbent with us and it uh, we all got a good laugh out of it but but they quickly realized that. You know, our, our, our purpose was nothing but to support them and to increase their standing in uh, in the community. Yeah. And, and I'm sure also to create some sort of feeling of stability for the citizens of Iraq. There was much going on that the average citizen wouldn't, uh, wouldn't hear. And one of the truly unique things we were able to do was to... Uh, 
to, to use our resources to move them around on Bar Province. You, you know, you, you take local reporter in Fallujah or Ramadi, maybe he's got a vehicle, maybe he doesn't, but he, he really can't get up to the northern end of the province where the Haditha Dam is now up and operational and creating electrical power. So frequently we would use, you know, military airlift uh, capabilities, our convoys capabilities, and just say, come on, guys, get, get on. We'll take you to the story. I, I, didn't, I didn't care how they told the story. You know, maybe they liked what they saw, maybe they didn't. We were committed to getting them to some of these locations so they could tell the story of, of the, the progress in Anbar. They uh, extremely professional. They, they had a, a, a professional uh, journalistic chapter there in Fallujah where they would meet and discuss issues and, and develop plans, and, uh, and it was a tremendous experience. That is so terrific. Now, picking up on something you said, you said you didn't care how they told the story. Is that in part because you wanted to understand their perception of things so you could go back in? And, and help them to understand, you know, so that you could both understand the story that you both perceived, meet in the middle, and create something that was a win-win for both sides? In, in my line of work, I think there's always going to be the threat, the, uh, we're always fending against an accusation of propaganda or manipulation or something, something of that nature. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were very sensitive to that when working with the uh, working with any journalist, but particularly working with the uh, the uh, Iraqi journalist in Anbar, um, we just wanted to give them access, get, get them to the story, and and then write the story. You know, and, and we would never think of of you know looking over their shoulder or attempting to you know we just want to just like we would you know the Wall Street Journal. You know, here are the facts. This is our position. Um, obviously, as a reporter, you're going to go get a couple of other positions. That's your job. And, and we would find them to do the same thing. And, and largely, they did. Good for you. What is, I mean, it sounds like there's many proud moments here, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes. What was your personal, like, what was the sweet spot for you where you thought, you know what, wow, this is a hard, you know, hard undertaking but wow, this one moment made me feel like this was worth all of the hard work, all of the hard research, and you know all the moving pieces. Well, um, in September, Anbar Province transitioned back to full Iraqi control and sovereignty, and um, and a large ceremony, provincial Iraqi control ceremony, took place in Ramadi. Um, you know, you've got to think back. Ramadi is the city that Al Qaeda once pronounced its its capital in Iraq. Mm-hmm. So, extremely uh, significant, extremely important. And now the governor of Anbar was hosting his own parade, his own um, event to mark regaining sovereignty in Anbar. And you know, we we just decided this was an, an Iraqi event. This was a regional event, and we really wanted to. Uh, facilitate those news organizations. Uh, we, we wanted to make sure this story was told. We wanted it documented forever. We wanted to make sure the other team could never come back and said, you know, we, we ran you Marines out of Onbar. 
So, uh, you know, work, working with our Iraqi uh, specialist, we uh, invited dozens of, uh, of the regional media, uh, detailed security screening process to get people in to allow access, um, satellite trucks. It, it was a presidential inauguration type event for this region. Uh, at the end of the day, we had close to 100 different uh, media reps in attendance from you know, dozens of different organizations, and, uh, and, and we had some Western uh, folks, too, and they really accurately told the story of, of Anbar province, of, of all that had taken place and, uh, and, and, and all that had now transpired, and, and that's now part of history, and, uh, and that was really important to, to tell it and to tell it correctly, and, and, they, and they did. Good for you. You know, that's so very exciting. Now, I, another question for you, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes. Um, tell us how you found your place in public relations uh, in the Marines. My story is not unlike uh, too many of my colleagues. It's, uh, you know, kind of the, the, long, the long journey that, uh, that, that leads you somewhere where maybe you should have been all along. You know, I'm I, old, old enlisted Marine, uh, combat engineer, you don't sound old. <laughs> I resent that. Old is not old is is not in your vocabulary. I feel old some days. Um, <laughs> oh, we'll have a we'll have a conversation mm-hmm. offline about that. But you know, but I uh, I was an artillery uh, officer. Uh, you know, so I, I had a good grounding in how the Marine Corps operates and 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 priorities and functions. And you know, then at the at the mid level in my career, you know, I had to make some decisions about what the Marine Corps needed, what opportunities were available. And I, and I crossed over into what we call uh, public affairs. And it's, it's been a heck of a ride. I've, I've been all over the world. I've worked in, in places like East Timor when, you know, a whole government is collapsing and civil war is, uh, is, uh, is, is imploding upon a society. I was in Afghanistan in uh, November of 2001, and it was an uh, incredibly special uh, time and place to, to be right there when, uh, when we, we started this war. Um, so just, you know, the opportunities that, uh, that have opened up to, to me and to Marines around me in, in this line of work has been incredible. And, you know, one thing that, that's probably of, of interest to your listeners is I don't know that we do a good enough job of, of Telling people about these career options in the armed forces, um, you know, we have people that, um, you know, we have our own photographers, we have our own journalists that, that write, and these young people go everywhere and do everything, and it's such a great initial start in this industry, and if they transition somewhere else later on, good good on them, uh, but it's a it's a great a great. Uh, initial start to a career and dynamic organization and and some of our people go on to do uh, tremendous things from here yeah which is which is wonderful i mean and there's obviously so many i mean my god there's so many facets of the marines that you can become involved with and you are giving back to you know the country that you know you're an American citizen. Try to do what you can to help solidify us here and where we've made our commitments overseas. Uh, you know, so thank you for plugging that. And for those of you that are interested, especially college students, 
You know, it's a great, it's a free ride, people. It's a free ride to making a difference. It's, um, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. Um, you know, some, sometimes when I'm standing on some desolate airstrip at, you know, 2 a.m., I, I have to remind myself of that, but it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's been a heck of a ride. Can you remind my staff that when they have to stay past 8 o'clock at night? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes, Director of Public Affairs for the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force at Camp Pendleton. Thank you so very much for sharing your submission with us. And uh, we do agree. It's all about the conversation. Stay tuned for more 2009 PRSA Silver Anvil Awards coverage only on webmasterradio.fm. Stick around. Cover Story. We'll be back after this short break. SEOSeek.com is your one-stop site for everything SEO. From search engine marketing to pay-per-click management, SEOSeek.com delivers high-quality SEO services at affordable prices. SEOSeek.com can help you with SEO analysis, monthly reports, title and meta tag optimization, email support, and so much more. Want to keep your SEO in-house? Let our professional trainers teach SEO to your staff. Get a free quote and a free competitive analysis today at SEOSeek.com. Are you happy with your landing page performance? Discover how to improve your landing page performance with ConversionCritic.com. Brought to you by Engine Ready. Turn your underperforming landing pages into cost-effective sales-producing machines. Be sure you're not wasting your precious PPC budget. Conversion Critic Tools give you the ingredients to create high converting landing pages. You don't have to be an expert to use Engine Ready's Conversion Critic Tools, but you'll feel like a landing page pro. Take the guesswork out of increasing your conversion rate. Visit conversioncritic.com and boost your conversion rate for free. That's www.conversioncritic.com. How do you choose the right affiliate network to partner with? The answer is simple. MarketHealth.com, where health and wealth connect. Established in 1998, the MarketHealth.com affiliate network allows you to market and promote the world's leading health and beauty offers on the net. Start making recurring income and the highest payouts in our industry. Choose from over 50 of the hottest selling offers, ranging from herbal supplements, skincare, vitamins, beauty products, weight loss, and much more. Sign up for free at MarketHealth.com and start making money today. Join marketing to women expert Maria Retan as she chats with those in the know so your business can grow. Purse Strings, Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the advertising channel. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Commercials off. Now back to Cover Story. We're reserving a headline for you. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here's your host. Welcome back to our exclusive coverage of the 2009 PRSA Silver Anvil Awards. Once again, here's Brandy Shapiro-Babbin. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Brandy Shapiro-Babbin of WebmasterRadio.fm, and uh, welcome to Cover Story. Today, again, we are covering the Silver Anvil Awards, and today's nomination is 
Multicultural Public Relations Associations, Government, and Non-For-Profit. The entry is Arm Yourself with Coverage, Armante de Valor, and our two featured guests today are Tom Dardet, who is with PR Link, which is a public relations and marketing consultancy company, and Dan Gross, CEO of PAX, Real Solutions for Gun Violence. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you. This is terrific. So let's, first of all, I um, am a former member of the board of directors for the um, Boys and Girls Club of America in Fort Lauderdale. So this is something that I, I believe very strongly in. You know, children having a place of structure and a place they can count on that, that, that really gives them a sense of self and a sense of self-awareness and positiveness. Um, so congratulations. If you would, if you would, Tom, could you set the stage for us in regard to, like, the overview of the campaign? Well, I mean, the the bottom line is that this campaign, the, the, the main goal of this campaign is to try to keep uh, schools free of violence and free of weapon-related violence. Uh, you know, we, we, the, the organization that we were working for, Centennial of Puerto Rico, um, asked us to adapt a campaign that had been very successful in the U.S., Called Speak Up. Uh, Dan Dan will be able to um, speak more about that campaign because it pertains to his organization, to Pax USA. And uh, the bottom line is to try to keep schools free of all weapon-related violence and to keep them focused on education. That's the long-term goal of this. Uh, with that in mind, uh, we adapted this campaign for implementation locally and made some changes and. Luckily, the the folks from Pax allowed us to to make some adaptations so that it would work uh, here in Puerto Rico. And um, you know, we've been very very happy with the implementation. We've seen a lot of positive results, and uh, and we hope that we can continue this for 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 many years to come. Yeah, which is terrific. Dan, talk to us. You know, you founded this organization. What prompted you? you know, to create this found, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious, but why personally for you did you decide to find this, you know, organization? Well, like a lot of people, I come to the issue of gun violence prevention, violence prevention through personal experience. My younger brother, um, in my case, um, was, uh, was shot in a shooting that happened actually on the observation deck of the Empire State Building in February of 1997. At the time, I was a, a partner at a big advertising agency called J. Walter Thompson. Absolutely. And, um, and my, my brother was, um, he was, he was shot in the head and critically injured, um, but, um, but, but miraculously has survived, um, and, um, and, and it, it changed his life dramatically, and it changed the lives of all of us who, uh, who love him and, and care about him. In my case, I just uh, couldn't, couldn't go back to work knowing that this, uh, this issue was out there, realizing on a very personal level how it impacts families and communities and, and our nation, and, um, and realizing that there was an opportunity to do something about it and put my experience and, and passion for marketing and communication um, to use for something that I now cared about much more deeply than uh, some of the, um, some of the uh, clients I was working on when I was in advertising. You know, first of all, obviously so sorry about your brother, but second, commend you for taking something so negative. You know, th- thank God your brother 
it seems like he's he's living a good, strong, healthy life today, yes? Yeah, I mean, considering what happened to him, yes. You know, he was shot in the head, and uh, not a lot of people um, do, uh, live, live to tell about that. And, and he has, and uh, physically he's doing really well, you know, cognitively, emotionally. Um, he's had some challenges that he's had to deal with, but he's, um, he's dealt with them uh, heroically, and, uh, and he's doing really well. Good. I think that's beautiful, and I think it's beautiful that you know you've taken his story and you've created a program to ensure that less people are going to experience, unfortunately, what your brother did. So let's let's talk. Let's talk about the program. Let's talk about how you pull these pieces together to create this program. I mean, because it's daunting, and especially when you come from an emotional place, where I'm sure you did. That's got to make it even more difficult. Well, yeah, you know, I, I kind of from the outset, I didn't want to, I didn't want to fall in that, um, you know, fall into that. Uh, that Vigilante. Trap, I guess you can say it is that a lot of, um, you know, that a lot of victims do of just kind of coming from this place that is, you know, that really only, you know, those of us who experience it can identify with it. Um, you know, we wanted to, you know, make people realize that this issue is a um, is one that really impacts all of us. It impacts our our, our peace of mind, our, our our way of life, and and really, you know, it, and it, it it was very helpful to come from that marketing and communications background because in reality, a lot of that is a marketing and communications challenge to make people understand um, exactly uh, the extent to which this imp- this issue impacts all of us or has the potential to impact all of us. And very importantly, that there are real things that we can do to, um, to, to address it, to make our homes, our schools, our communities safer. So really from the outset, we, we set out to, to look for those types of solutions and, then, and, and to promote them. And uh, we made a, a very, uh, you know, a real a concerted effort uh, not to just uh, approach this issue from a place of emotion, but also to uh, approach it from a place of doing something positive um, that truly has an impact. Which is wonderful. Now, why Puerto Rico? Well, the, the way our organization works, the way, the way PACS works, is we create these national public health and safety campaigns, um, one of which is the Speak Up campaign. And um, we, we create the resources and the messages um, behind, behind those programs. Um, so, you know, we set up this national hotline for 866-SPEAK-UP for kids to call if they know about a weapon-related threat. We, we, um, we did all the, 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 the research and the homework to understand the, the extent of the opportunity associated with getting kids to speak up. You know, in four out of five school shootings, uh, the attackers tell other students about their plans. That was a fact that came out in a government study in the wake of the school shootings that happened around 10 years ago that included Columbine. So, you know, we as an organization realized that there was a tremendous opportunity if we can provide students with the inspiration and the mechanism to uh, talk about what they know. Um, that's, what we, that's the way we work as an organization. And then what we look to do is to implement our programs um, and adopt them to, um, for implementation in local communities, because that's really where the rubber meets the road. You know, Absolutely. the days of, you know, of, of give a hoot, don't pollute, or, you know, right. some of these, uh, some, some mm-hmm. of these other public service and, uh, campaigns from our youth 
um, are kind of gone, where you can just you know, get a PSA on network television and think you're going to change the world. Really, the way you create change is to dig deep within the communities, create a sense of ubiquity in those communities where, where you, know, you have public service advertising, you work with local partners to get your messages into schools, you work with local businesses and so forth. And Puerto Rico was one of those places that really, really stepped up on all of those fronts. Um, Centennial de Puerto Rico uh, is, um, is, is the business, um, the financial sponsor of, of the program. Um, we have access to tremendous creative talent and communications talent in, um, in Tom's company, PR Links. In, in Puerto Rico, we're, work, we're working with some wonderful local organizations, Boys and Girls Clubs, Chandra, Chandra Levy, um, to, um, to, to get the message out. And so it really was as much about Puerto Rico selecting um, the Speak Up campaign as it was Speak Up selecting Puerto Rico. And um, as Tom can tell you, it's already had uh, tre- tremendous results. Jeez. I can tell you that locally... Um, we found that this initiative was a very distinctive and unique initiative to implement in Puerto Rico for Centennial um, because there's nothing like it and uh, nobody else is doing anything about this problem. On the one hand, you know, luckily we have not had in Puerto Rico any um, extreme type of massacre like Columbine or Virginia Tech, eh, thank God. Eh, but we, we had seen and we had studied different statistics from uh, uh, reporting uh, violent incidents occurring in high schools in different parts of the island, and we had seen how over the past uh, five years the trend was increasing and increasing and increasing, and, and all of these uh, horrible things were happening all around the world, not just mm-hmm. in in the U.S., but in Europe and in Holland and in different parts of, of the world, and we, we thought that it was only a matter of time when it could start happening here. You know, just based on the on the increase of violent incidents in, uh, occurring locally, and we decided, and we recommended to to Centennial to to implement this program as a preventive effort, as, a, as something that could prevent something like this. I guess one of the key the key success factors of this program was the outreach to different organizations. It, this took a lot of you know a lot of time and a lot of meetings and a lot of convincing in, in, in some cases, uh, but it was very important that we had the, um, the, the school system, the Department of Education on board, and that we had the police department uh, on board. And after, you know, many local, you know, tweakings and meetings and et cetera, we put the program together in such a manner that when the call came through, the call would be handled by PACs, by their operators who had been trained for this, and they 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 added some Spanish-speaking operators as well, and they take the kids through a series of program of of questions that were all prepared by the Secret Service, and they're all are all designed to extract as much information as possible as in regards to the threat, but not extract any personal information that may compromise the identity of the caller. And uh, once that, that, that all that information is taken, a report is written, and it was important that that report be sent to the right people within these two organizations. And in the case of the school, uh, the Department of Education, it, it, is, sent, it is sent to the, um, the people that handle security. And in the case of the police, it wasn't sent just to the police department. It was sent to the 
um, the, um, the the Department of uh, of Illegal Weapons, where it's more like a detective work. These are people that act more uh, as detectives, and they may appear at school dressed in normal plain clothes, not you know with sirens and police cars and badges and all that stuff, which could, would actually probably be worse. Um, and then the other organizations that we brought on board with uh, were the uh, Boys and Girls Club of Puerto Rico that have um, six six uh, clubs around the island, and they were very important to help us disseminate the message uh, through very targeted uh, means, and also the Shana and Samuel Levy's Foundation, which is a foundation dedicated to managing conflicts in schools, and they really were instrumental in helping us adapt a workshop that would be implemented in schools in order to deal with all of these issues of speaking up and daring to speak up. And they were all filled with different modules and examples of situations that are reenacted where, you know, a boy, you know, faces a situation like this and decides not to speak up. And then what happens? And, um, Another kid, you know, faces the same situation but decides to talk and, and what happens. And and the after that program was implemented, we saw, you know, the, 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 the perceptions change dramatically and, and increase towards the favoring of speaking up. And we also, it was very important for this campaign. Um, it was all developed as a PSA campaign, and we were able to, to present it to the general media in Puerto Rico. We did a press conference for the launch, but then we also did a, a separate launch event for um, all, the, all the, the the broadcast media and the newspapers and the magazines, but more from a, from a publishing point of view to explain to them the whole, the, the need and, and the how it was so important that they help us, you know, transmit and, 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 and display this whole campaign. And uh, we were able to secure um, over $3 million in free advertising space for this campaign from the generous support of the local media. So, you know, luckily we were able to, to strike a chord and to, you know, and, and to identify, you know, the need and to be able to explain the need for something like this to to be carried out um, which was has been instrumental in gaining the awareness of the line because that what that's what it's all about that's how we the kids need to know that this exists that that it's confidential and that there's a specific number where you can call you know and they can make a, they can make a difference yeah what do you think is the one single thing that really solidified the message to the students and gave them that feeling of, of trust and also a sense of honor and responsibility where they stepped up. You know, because a lot of times, unfortunately, and it's, it's, it's not just children, it's adults. You know, you think, let someone else handle this. Let me, let me not get involved. I think the bottom line is um, the, the effect that it can have, you know, in their own lives and uh, you know, to make a difference, and you could actually save lives if you just pick up the phone and call. Um, because and and that that complete message is given in the workshops. You know, when everything else is put together, that workshop was really important to to get that change. And 
and um, they kind of felt, in you know, to quote one of the kids, they kind of, you know, we were able to to change that perception that um, a speaking up is not of coward. It's it's almost like they compared it to to an undercover agent, you know. A, an undercover agent has an honorable job. He's a policeman that's working undercover to solve problems and to save lives and things like that. And when, you know that came up naturally in these in these um, workshops that we were doing. And uh, I thought that was you know really really cool. Yeah, that <laughs> is. That is. A, <laughs> you know, you make it a little shift, sexy. You know. Like it's an unfortunate thing, but that's the you know I think being like an undercover cop has a lot of like sex appeal yeah. to it. Yeah. I mean it's true, and to allow kids to feel like they you know you actually have some power. Not only you know and you've got power to save the life of yourself, the life of people you know, and then of course as an insurance policy for people in the future. Let's talk about the evaluation. You know you're you know you had some great outputs. Let's see what some of the outcomes were. We had in uh, now the program has been running for about eight months, and we've received a total of over over 800 calls um, to the thought line. And uh, of these calls, we've had over 60 weapon-related, um, uh, um, 60 reports have been written and sent uh, to the uh, authorities here in Puerto Rico. So we're talking about potentially 60 incidents you know, have been anticipated and avoided. Which is true. Um, now, how do you, my question to you is, how do you separate um, real calls mm-hmm. versus, you know, people who are making a call because they don't like someone or a group of people? Did you find that people were making false accusations? We, we actually, you know, the, nationally the Speak Up Hotline has gotten over 30,000 calls. And um, you know, we—that's where doing doing your homework in advance uh, really really pays off. Um, you know, first of all, to be certain that you're asking the right questions that are able to separate um, the uh, the true threats from other calls. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, as as Tom mentioned, we worked very closely with experts in law enforcement, uh, including the FBI and the Secret Service and police chiefs and so forth, as well as with experts in education and and child psychology and so forth to make sure that we got that exactly right and we took it very seriously. Um, and that's been effective uh, not not only nationally um, but but also uh, in this campaign specifically in, in, in Puerto Rico. Um, and then the other thing to realize though is and we kind of knew this going in because we did all our homework um, that uh, kids actually don't use this hotline maliciously. We knew that they weren't going to because there had been some local attempts to start hotlines and it just wasn't a dynamic that seemed to be occurring. Um, and that, that's, played out, that's played out over the 30,000 calls that we've gotten nationally as well as the 800 calls in Puerto Rico. Kids, they, they, they know where to draw the line. You know, I, I equate it to, you know, I mean, it's kind of dark, but, you know, when, we, when, when I was in school, you know, anybody could have called in a bomb threat if they didn't want to take a test or right. gone around pulling <laughs> fire alarms and blaming other people and those kind of things. And it just rarely, rarely happened. Um, and, uh, and, and it seems to be the, the case with, with Speak Up. Uh, kids realize the, the importance 
of the information that's being passed along, the uh, repercussions associated um, with passing along that information, um, and uh, and the opportunity to actually prevent you know something bad from happening or to um, create something good, and all that combined seems to result in um, not 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 a lot of calls, if any, um, that are really malicious in spirit. We get calls where kids are reporting other things. Um, from you know from drugs to um, sexual abuse um, to you know um, somebody who they think may commit suicide and in that case we have a whole pro- protocol surrounding that where we refer um, the kids to vetted um, uh, other vetted hotlines that might specialize in, in, in some of those areas um, we also get people who want information about the campaign um, but we don't um, we don't get those malicious calls Good for. I mean, you know what? That is that is so positive to hear. And from what I understand, you um, received sixty thousand dollars in free publicity and over three million dollars in public service advertising space. Yes, yes. And it's it's more than that now. Uh, but um, yes, the the support from the media, both editorial and uh, and just advertising space wise, has been outstanding. They have really supported this, but which I, which I believe is a sign of the need of a campaign like this. You know, they wouldn't have given it so much airtime if it wouldn't struck a chord. And, oh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, and being it something so new and so different and so needed, they they I believe you know they they really supported it. Um, we also. After conducting the workshops, we we noticed that the calling intention, you know, that intention to call increased by 44% among students when they would, you know, when when they were asked if they would call an anonymous hotline. So that that you know everything combined, you know, made a big difference. And also after conducting the workshop, the belief that, that an anonymous hotline could help prevent school shootings increased from 43% to 60% among the students that participated in the survey. I mean, good works, guys. Good works. Because I'll tell you, when I went to school, you know, last year, um, you know, the the biggest threat was, you know, kids beating each other up, someone sticking someone's head in a toilet. I mean, things Mm -hmm. that were very um, emotionally painful, you know, you got you got a black eye, you got bloody, you got bruised, but today when you walk into, you know, America's public schools, you're walking through metal, metal you know, metal... Detectors. Yeah. You're walking through metal detectors. You know, you've got um, officers that are on-site at schools, and, you know, creating that kind of environment is so n- negative. And if you can have a preemptive strike where people feel confident and comfortable to call a hotline, then that can alleviate, you know, that kind of, you know, that kind of vibe from an atmosphere, which, you know, will allow people to flourish and grow and hit their full potential. You know, one Mm -hmm. less thing to worry about in this world. And my God, the most important thing to worry about is the life of yourself and and the people that you love. Right. School, school tragedy, school violence, youth violence has not occurred as a result of the uh, amazing work of our, uh, our colleagues in Puerto Rico. Good for you. I think that, you know, was the, the gun shooting of your brother, but I think that, you know, I'm always out of bad comes good, and the good is that all of these different states have a program that help alleviate this so this doesn't happen to another person. 
Um, First of all, I'd like to thank you, Dan Gross, CEO of um, Pax Real Solutions for Gun Violation, and Tom Dardet of PR Links. Good works. I mean, extremely impositive good works. And it's so positive to see the strong lift that you're getting throughout the continental U.S. with high schools. And do you have any final comments and closing comments? Well, um, I, I just wanted to say, Brandy, that uh, having been uh, nominated for this award from the PRSA has been an enormous honor for our firm. Um, but uh, the real acknowledgement, I believe, belongs to Centennial, uh, Centennial of Puerto Rico, which identified this need to, to create a program like this, a program that would prevent weapon-related threats in schools and for providing all of the economic support to enable the um, the complete implementation and absolute implementation of this program in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, it, it's very different to 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 have the foresight and say, uh, you know, um, we can implement programs that can save lives uh, versus you know wait waiting for the disaster to happen and then react. So, just wanted to mention that. You know what? Good for you. Good for you. And it is, you know, to me, we're we're very fond of the Public Relations Society of America. And to just be nominated for a Silver Anvil Award is such a high honor. And it really does. You know, it's a nice way to reinforce the fact that, you know, you guys get out there, you work tirelessly, you work for, you know, a program that's really good. But it's nice when other people acknowledge Mm -hmm. that as well. And especially yeah. when it's amongst your peers. I feel like a winner already. You are a winner. <laughs> you are a winner. You know what? You Thank are a winner. You. Both of you. Both of you are winners. So Dan Gross, CEO of PAX Real Solutions for Gun Violation, and Tom Dardet. Um, of PR Links. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we wish you the very best of luck when it comes time to sit at the award ceremony in June in New York City. You have been listening to our exclusive coverage of the 2009 PRSA Silver Anvil Awards, only on WebmasterRadio.fm.